Hi everybody, my name is Larry C. Notch. I lead life sciences and healthcare for DHL customer solutions and innovation. It's certainly my honor and pleasure to be here with you today to be able to share some perspective from DHL about the impact that the COVID-19 outbreak and pandemic has had on the life sciences and healthcare supply chain. Uh, during my presentation, uh, I'll dive a bit deeper into that. Some of our learnings from the initial outbreak and the challenges that the sector saw overall. And then I'll talk a little bit about some of the forthcoming challenge potentially to deliver a vaccine or vaccines to the worldwide market as we move forward. And then finally, I'll close with perhaps some perspective about what the new normal may look like and what the world might want to consider in the event that we have another outbreak in the future. I'm certainly excited to, uh, to be here today with you and to be able to share this perspective. And thank you again for this opportunity. When COVID initially broke out in China and in parts of the world, we saw a huge impact on the supply chain overall. The sudden surge in demand for personal protective equipment for PPE was enormous. As this slide documents, the increase was significant as we think about what UNICEF realized and what some of the other institutions around the world saw in the complete surge in demand for product to be able to protect frontline employees as well as people within countries. Some of the challenges were so significant that in fact we saw the demand overwhelm the infrastructure capability that there existed in certain countries. China as an example, which was a primary provider of much of the PPE around the world. The lines and the backlogs to be able to get product out of the country into other countries was so significant that it overwhelmed the infrastructure of many of the airports and many of the ocean ports around the country. Additionally, we saw a lack of capacity on the manufacturing side. So as manufacturers swiveled to try to fill that demand, subsequently there was a drop in quality in some cases. And countries were challenged because they didn't have an infrastructure to be able to view and confirm that quality before product was shipped out of the country. So as a result, there were issues in certain parts of the world where product would arrive at substandard quality and not be sufficient to meet the demand of the country in challenge. So again, it's an environment where I think we saw many, many learnings. Primarily that perhaps there needed to be a stronger consideration of pre-planning and also a focus on ensuring that quality was there across the board. Many of the governments around the world saw issues and challenges with regard to the quality of the infrastructure and the buffer stock they already had inside that country or nation. Respirators were not up to demand. The personal protective equipment that would be used with frontline healthcare workers was not sufficient. The availability of N90 masks, as an example. So as we thought about that in the context, we realized that as the world considers the scope and challenge of delivering a vaccine or vaccines to solve this issue, to help us return to a normalized environment, that we had to start pre-planning that now. It's an unprecedented challenge when you think about it. The worldwide population of approximately 7.8 billion people will need in excess of 10 billion doses to be able to solve this problem. Some of the vaccines may require multiple doses. That's how you arrive at a number larger than the worldwide population. Additionally, because of the scope of this project problem, 
you can realize that the, the sudden demand for packaging, as an example, on the temperature control side, the potential movements, the sheer number of pallets that might be required or pallet shipping devices to be able to support the product movements around the world are significant. It gets even more challenging when you start to think about the temperature requirements. And although I'm very excited to see a number of companies now moving through the pipeline into stage three, and soon we all have our fingers crossed into a real vaccine that can be delivered to the world, we still have to be thinking about this and planning for the challenge at this point now. We can't afford to wait. And I'm delighted to say, certainly in the conversations where I'm a participant, much of this conversation has already started, and the planning is ongoing in many, many different veins, both within the manufacturing space, as well as in the NGO and even the public space as we move forward. Typically, vaccines are delivered in a 2 to 8C environment. But because of the accelerated clinical trial process, around the development of this vaccine or vaccines, some of the biotechnology platforms may in fact have to take a very stringent approach. So that may lead to the challenge of having to manage a cold chain, which is not two to eight, but in fact is minus 70 to minus 80 C across the world. The temperature requirements may vary across the biotech platforms as well. So we may have a need with one vaccine to be able to provide minus 70 to minus 80 C temperature controlled transportation and distribution. And in other environments, two to eight might suffice or even minus 18 to 20 might be a necessity as we move forward. The challenges are complex when you start to get into the details. At a high level, it certainly seems surmountable, and I do believe these challenges are surmountable, but there's a significant amount of planning and coordination that needs to take place across the entire infrastructure, from the manufacturing side, through the logistics service provider side, all the way into the country where the governments and or others for the buyers will take over and potentially provide the final mile delivery. Still, I'm excited to be part of the context and the landscape as we work forward toward a solution. And certainly we are keen to uh, be able to help manage this. If you think about it in the context of what the delivery distribution scenario might look like, we might see something like the following. Potentially two scenarios. A stringent scenario where the lack of data around the temperature stability of the vaccine and movement might require the manufacturer to feel that they have to maintain a temperature in the most stringent case, potentially the minus 70 to minus 80 C environment, as well as a conventional scenario. I do think over time as the vaccine or vaccines come to the market, we'll certainly see a migration, a change, as more stability data is gathered around those products and that we're able to ensure that product delivered at a 2 to 8C environment on an mRNA platform vaccine will in fact still have the highest level of efficacy and ensure that it delivers what it's supposed to, a prevention of an infection by the virus. Similarly, the supply chain archetypes will migrate over time as well. Uh, certainly in the initial phases as the vaccine comes online or vaccines, arrive to the market, it's quite plausible that we'll see many shipments that are direct to point of care, to point of inoculation, so to speak. We'll also realize an environment, I believe, where over time that will transition, 
we'll see more consolidated shipments, more break bulk opportunities where shipments are moved in mass in larger quantities into a country or into a city or an airport and then broken down through a cross dock mechanism. That's why some logistics service providers are out there talking about the need potentially for ultra low temperature storage units to be able to support potentially again the stringent scenario that it referenced earlier. And then certainly over time, as the world realizes more and more stability, as we reach a level of herd immunity uh, through the use of vaccines and also exposure for people that have had the virus and have overcome it and have built up antibody resistance, I think we'll see a more traditional pharmaceutical distribution scenario where product will be moved into a country, warehoused, and then supplied on demand as necessary. So again, it's going to be a shifting scenario. That's why it's very hard to predict exactly what the requirements will be. As we worked on the problem with our partner McKinsey, we realized that, in fact, it's a bit of a hard-to-tell situation. So we took an estimate where we realized that potentially as much as 3 billion doses in 2021 could come from the mRNA platform, and then we could see another 6 to 7 billion doses come from other platforms as we move forward. So again, it'll be a mix. It's unlikely to be a single scenario. And that, again, raises the level of complexity and the planning that's necessary to ensure we can move forward. It's also important to think about what it looks like at the destination level. And when you consider some of the challenges around in-country logistics, they're not insignificant. In a stringent scenario, perhaps there are 25 to 30 countries around the world that have the infrastructure and the capability to be able to ensure a smooth and easy delivery of a minus 70 or minus 80 C temperature controlled vaccine to the population. That challenge becomes a little bit less if you move to a more conventional scenario of 2 to 8 C, where there are 60 countries or so around the world that have that capability and certainly expands to a much larger swath of the population at around 5 billion people. Still, there are challenges in either scenario. More in the stringent scenario, you have to think about, again, the need for dry ice, the need to be able to resupply, security, packaging, uh, not least of which ensuring that packaging can be reused, so making sure it gets back to a point of sterilization and then to be able to be resupplied to the manufacturers again to help support this and to ensure that the world is also realizing a level of sustainability in the supply chain as we move forward. But again, nothing is insurmountable, but planning is paramount. And as we work forward, those are some of the challenges you can see from this slide in the geographical depiction of where those gaps might exist around the world. It's certainly not hard to surmise. You think about Sub-Saharan Africa or some of the areas in the Middle East that have very harsh climates, Asia, Latin America. Again, we as a worldwide entity have to be thinking about how we successfully deliver to all parts of the world. And certainly that's a challenge that we at DHL are strongly considering as we move forward as well. And swiveling back to what the new norm might look like, I think it's important to consider what the growth picture could potentially be. This slide gives an example of what the potential growth scenario might look like. As I look at this slide, though, 
you know, and the uh, the data that it represents, what it says to me is that there's a high level of uncertainty still about what the potential economic outlook is for all of us as we move forward. So understanding that that uncertainty exists, I think it falls back on us, those that work in supply chain and logistics, to be thinking about what the consideration should be for the new norm and how we react to the market. I think the world of pre-corona is probably gone for at least a foreseeable next years or so. And whether that means one year to five years, no one's quite certain. So as we consider that, there are some contextual questions we should be asking ourselves, I believe. On this slide, I shared a quote from Richard Wilding, a professor of supply chain strategy at the Cranford School of Management in the United Kingdom. And Professor Wilding made a very, very strong point that I think we all should be thinking about. In the new normal, if your supply chain is the same as the one you had pre-coronavirus, well, quite likely it's wrong. And it's a, uh, a supposition that my team and I and the rest of DHL have certainly taken to the marketplace as we consider trying to help and support our customers and also planning ourselves for what the new norm will look like and how we are equipped and prepared to deal with it. The journey to the new normal, if you look at this slide, it depicts potentially what the timeline you know, has been like. You know, during the early days of the lockdown, we saw a focus on crisis management and a need to be able to react immediately to the marketplace. The sudden surge of demand for PPE and companies swiveling quickly to find sources, even alternative sources in many instances, to be able to ensure a smooth flow to keep operations going. Staying close to customers, doing everything they could to ensure that they were managing to the customer's expectations and communication was paramount. Liquidity became a huge concern for everybody. I think ensuring that cash flow was secured, that the access to liquidity was there in order to be able to fund operations. And certainly protecting the workforce was the bottom line, I think, for every employer on a large scale basis around the world. During the period of time, though, we saw a shift. I mean, a focus on accessing crisis scenarios and assuring or assessing crisis scenarios and ensuring that there was strong planning for other emergencies as they came forward. Looking at the, not only the Tier 1 suppliers, but the Tier 2 and the Tier 3 suppliers and analyzing where that might represent risk as we move forward. Thinking about ways to reconfigure your supplier network and your access to raw materials and or finished goods in some instances around the world. Perhaps reducing your dependency on certain geographic countries or certain regions in some cases because of some of the challenges around the transportation infrastructure as the airspace is certainly still continue to be a challenge for many of us. And now moving forward toward a new norm, how do we start to optimize and really focus on a successful solution, a truly successful supply chain in the future? Again, diversifying geographies is a key concern and suppliers, but understanding potential what business models might change. Is omnichannel now more important than it ever was? And if you look at some of the impact in the life sciences and healthcare space, it certainly is a shift. My wife is a nurse manager leading a 
public clinic in several disciplines outside of New York City. And during the outbreak, she has seen a significant percentage of the in-person visitations that she used to have with the patients that came to the clinic that were managed by the nurses inside the clinic and the doctors there shift to telemedicine. That's only one example. We see so many other opportunities now where direct-to-patient will become more and more important in the future. And it's certainly a consideration that everybody within the life sciences and healthcare sector and space needs to be thinking about. So beyond that, in analyzing and really thinking about what to do differently as you move forward, you know, we've seen some information that would suggest many companies are already taking this under their belt as a to-do, as a must-to-do, in fact. Uh, you know, our, our information or insight would suggest that 60% of the companies out there intend to do much more due diligence around their supply chains with a strong focus on diversifying their supplier base geographically. And more than 20% have made decisions to increase their inventory even post-COVID-19 outbreaks to ensure that they have more buffer stock in country, that they have more buffer stock to be able to support sudden surges in demand. Some other considerations that we would like to suggest to companies that they could think about uh, you know, mapping their supplier networks, certainly beyond tier one or tier two, but even to tier three. Assessing warehousing and distribution networks based on a new set of supply chain priorities. Are you prepared for omni-channel? Do you have the right solution if part of your business portfolio or business mix shifts to an e-commerce online platform direct to patient? So it's a challenge, again, that the industry is certainly faced with and something that we have to assess. Assessing inventory levels and warehouse layouts. What does the future hold? In a biopharmaceutical environment, product becomes smaller and colder. And the movement away from more traditional small molecule medicines certainly constitute a need and a requirement for all of us to work collectively to assess those needs and perhaps design the new biopharmaceutical warehouse of the future because I think that's a road still unveiling itself as we move down the path. DHL has been focused on delivering recovery workshops with many of our customers, both in the life sciences and the healthcare sector and beyond. But I certainly encourage everybody that might be listening to or watching this presentation to think about that and what their path could be forward as they move forward. I also think innovation is a key element here. And certainly in DHL, we saw a sudden acceleration on some of the innovation and innovative technologies we were already experimenting with. Think about that just a little bit further. You know, there are some real challenges that we saw. We were already working strongly with robotics in many of our life sciences and healthcare operations around the world and for other sectors as well. We accelerated that. We found a real opportunity to utilize robotics to help us clean those warehouses, to help us ensure that they were pristine. Now, obviously, a robot is not capable of fully sterilizing a warehouse to ensure that it prevents the spread of COVID-19 throughout the warehouse, but it certainly doesn't hurt. And it makes us feel better to know that we have very, very clean operations, that we can encourage our employees through other devices. We also took advantage of things like wearable devices. 
We had started on a path just a few years ago on using wearables to help improve the ergonomic posture and utilization of proper lifting technique among our warehouse workers around the world. What we found is COVID broke out though, is that those devices then became a useful tool to help us ensure that people were keeping or maintaining the proper social distance, maintaining that two to three meter separation that helps to reduce the spread. That's one example where innovation, where the use of technology became so much more valuable as the changing scenario. The Internet of Things is certainly not something anybody can underestimate. Uh, we've been working actively to map our warehouses and to find solutions to be able to create a middleware layer that will allow us to connect all forms of communication around that. For this sector, there's never been a, a more stronger necessity. And then to be able to ensure that we can track a shipment from the point of manufacturing all the way through to the final point of consumption. And there are many, many companies out there that are manufacturing devices and useful tools and capabilities to help us do that. So we at DHL are looking at that as a means of ensuring that through the Internet of Things, we are able to gather that data to be able to connect it and to be able to leverage it on behalf of our clients. Data is also obviously extremely important. We embarked on a journey nearly a decade ago where we started mapping the temperature outside the box for our pharmaceutical shippers. We collected that data over years and years and have built a bit of a data lake now. And that data allows us to start to analyze as we marry it up with the temperature inside the box with some of our customers, things like latent risk assessment. It allows us to help analyze our partnerships with the airlines and where they're successful in being able to move or expedite the transfer of pharmaceutical product from plain side to warehouse rather than having that product sit on the tarmac where it might dwell for an uncomfortable period of time and potentially at some level put the internal parcels inside of the medicines at risk because of going outside of stability. And we're working in a number of ways to help analyze those risks and leveraging all this together. And I think COVID-19 has just continued to accelerate that. And I certainly think it's something that we, as a broader sector, both from the manufacturing side as well as from the logistics service provider side, need to collectively come together and share thoughts and ideas and really think about how we can continue to improve. Because at the end, we all have a strong focus on a common person. There's a patient inside every box. There's a patient at the end of every delivery. Every order we fill impacts somebody's life. And I think we all understand that moral imperative. I'll close with one final thought here, you know, in regard to the future. And I certainly don't have a crystal ball. And I certainly also hope that within my life, uh, lifetime, the rest of my life, that we'll never see another pandemic come forward like we have with COVID-19. Unfortunately, though, Experience would suggest to me that I'd be wrong, that we will see another pandemic or another healthcare crisis in the future. And I certainly think there are some learnings that we've all seen from the initial outbreak of the pandemic to our point now that we should be considering how do we secure and ensure a more resilient life sciences and healthcare supply chain for the future in the event that we do have an experience similar to this at some point. 
This slide depicts some of those thoughts. And we've really come up with what I think of as a five-point consideration platform that the world needs to be thinking about. Uh, developing and disseminating a, a clear and predefined emergency response plan, but not only one that's managed by governments or NGOs, but also one that encompasses logistic service providers and even the manufacturers of pharmaceutical and medical device equipment that are so important and such an imperative for the frontline employees that are having to deal with patients as they're affected by a healthcare crisis. Ensuring that there is a strong public-private partnership network out there, that governments are in fact talking to logistic service providers, and that are you leveraging the expertise and the subject matter, uh, sweat intellectual sweat equity that we have built in the sector from the logistics perspective around this space, specifically. Physical logistics infrastructure is going to be a necessity as well. And I certainly think it's a consideration that governments and NGOs alike should be thinking about. Where do they need to have that infrastructure? How do they ensure that the quality controls are in place? That the capability of ensuring that buffer stocks are at the right levels of quality and availability? And even that, in fact, there may be cross-governmental cooperation and shifting supplies of an IT infrastructure that would allow for communication and clear cooperation between governments and private enterprises as well is also a critical element. And then finally, some level of organizational structure. Should there be some level of oversight, some level of cooperation, of some level of a team environment where companies and governments and NGOs alike are sharing data and looking at this? We believe strongly this five points, if they're attacked collectively, can help us build a more resilient, more capable supply chain for the future in the event of another healthcare emergency. I will close with simply saying that we have published a white paper around the pandemic and delivering pandemic resilience. I'd certainly encourage you to take the time to download the paper if you'd like to see our thoughts as they were built collectively with McKinsey. And certainly if you have feedback or further need for discussion around this, reach out to myself or members of my team. We'd be glad to assist you. Thank you again, and everybody be safe.